So this is the second part of the workshop on memory, memoirs and history. Uh, and it's a real pleasure for me, a huge pleasure and an honor to be sharing a platform with Ella Shohat. In my endorsement for her remarkable book, I described her as the wrecking ball of Zionist orthodoxies. <laughs> And Anne Julius called her the high priestess of Mizrahi anti-Zionism. And Anne Julius meant it as a criticism, but in fact it points to the real originality of Ella's work. And I have great admiration for Ella as a scholar, but I also have a special affinity with her as a fellow Iraqi Jew. <laughs> when I was a in my young teens in Israel, there was a scandal which involved Professor Benjamin Aktsin, a very right-wing dean of the Faculty of Social Sciences in, Tel in uh, Jerusalem University. And there was an, an Iraqi Jew who, from Israel who did a PhD at the Sorbonne and went to see Aktsin about the possibility of an academic post. And Aktsin said to him, Male Iraqi vele doctorat. What's an Iraqi doing with a PhD? <laughs> and being young, I internalized this, and I thought an Iraqi can't do a PhD. So I'm very, very proud to see you, an Iraqi girl, to reach such academic eminence. And it never occurred to me that I would ever do a doctorate, let alone end up as a professor at Oxford University. And in my early years here, I used to have to pinch myself to make sure I wasn't dreaming. Ella is a critic of Zionism. She comes from the perspective of post-colonial uh, studies and cultural studies. Uh, I approach Zionism from my perspective as international relations and diplomatic history. Now, all nationalist movements rewrite the history, and Zionism is no exception. Isaiah Berlin used to say that the Jews are like any other people, only more so. And by the same token, Zionist historiography is like any other nationalist historiography, only more so. Nationalist versions of history, wherever they are, tend to have a number of features in common. They are simplistic, selective, self-serving, and self-righteous. And all adjectives, all four adjectives, uh, begin with an S, which is how I remember these adjectives. And if you look at Israeli propaganda in relation to the massacre of innocent civilians in Gaza today, it embodies all of these features to a very extreme degree. And a particularly striking example of Zionist self-righteousness is Golda Meir, who said, all the wars against us have nothing to do with us. All the wars against us have nothing to do with us. Uh, the new history, of which I'm one of the only two remaining members, because Benny Morris veered to the extreme right, and that leaves only Ilan Pape and myself, the new history is a frontal attack 
on all the myths that have come to surround the birth of Israel in the first Arab-Israeli war. And the new history depicts the Palestinians as the main victims of the Zionist project. But in recent years I've been thinking more and more about the other victim of Zionism, which is the Jews of uh, the Arab lands. Salo Baron, the American Jewish historian, described Jewish history as, he, he coined the phrase, the lacrimose, uh, the lacrimose version of Jewish history. And the lacrimose version of Jewish history says that the treatment of the Jews everywhere, at all times, has been a long and never-ending cycle of discrimination, degrada degradation, persecution, culminating in the Holocaust. And this is what Ella just called the pogromization of Jewish history. And I accept this lacrimose version of Jewish history as relevant or accurate, may, uh, maybe valid at any rate, for the history of the Jews in Europe. But I don't accept it as a valid account of the history of the Jews in Arab lands. And I most definitely reject it as an account of the history of the Palestinians and Israel since 1948. Martin Gilbert wrote a book called In the House of Ishmael, A History of the Jews in Muslim Lands. And um, it was a catalogue of anti-Semitic incidents and of examples of violence and persecution uh, of Jews throughout history. He didn't engage with any of the important issues like Islam and Judaism, Islam and the Jews, any of the cultural issues. It was just a crude catalogue of anti-Jewish behaviour by uh, Arabs. I reviewed the book for the uh, Financial Times and it was a blistering attack on Martin Gilbert and his version of Jewish uh, history. But there was half a sentence which was favourable to him because a former warden of this college, Sir Raymond Carr, used to say, uh, if some poor bugger spent years writing a book and I'm reviewing it, I have to say something kind about it. <laughs> and Yale University Press, who published this book, had on their website a long list of quotations from the reviews headed by my half-sentence. <laughs> Uh, I mention this book because it's a prime example of the distortion, the deliberate distortion of the history of the Jews in Arab lands at the service of Zionist propaganda. A couple of years ago, I started writing a memoir. A friend of mine, Bernard Wasserstein, long ago encouraged me to write a memoir he said that my story as an Arab Jew would be of wider interest. He didn't um, persuade me, but he made the point that the only interesting memoirs are of a childhood, because grown-ups are fully formed, their views are predictable, especially the memoirs of politicians are always self-serving, whereas childhood is a formative period and it's interesting. At the joke in the Middle East Centre until Tariq Ramadan became a fellow here was that I was the only Arab among fellows because I was an Iraqi. 
but I had a problem that you encountered too and you talked about it in writing a personal account, speaking in the first uh, person. I'd written a biography of King Hussein of Jordan that was easy, but I was very hesitant about putting myself at the center of my account. One day I read a book by Orid Bashkin, an Israeli scholar in Chicago. Her book is called The New Babylonians, The History of the Jews in Modern Iraq. And it's a very sophisticated, erudite, sympathetic account of the history of the Jews, all aspects of Jewish life in Iraq in the 20th century. And reading her book gave me the idea of writing a memoir which is not an autobiography, but the story of my family in the broader political context of the times. I am an only child with two siblings. I say this because I was a boy and I had two siblings who were both sisters, who, who, who were sisters, who were girls. And in Baghdad in those days, boys were a huge asset and girls were considered a liability and sometimes even a curse. Uh, and my grandmother used to say to my sisters, Abby, that's me, Abby, who al asal, who al basal. Abby is the honey and you are the peels of the onion. In my memoir, I write the history of the family, including prejudices like that against women. And there are three broader themes that are illustrated by my personal story. One is Muslim-Jewish relations in Iraq. The other is Mizrahi, Ashkenazi-Mizrahi relations in Israel. And the third theme is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And one common frame of reference for all of these is clash of civilizations, that Israel belongs to the West. Israel belongs to Judeo-Christian civilization against the barbarians. And it was Bernard Lewis who coined, who first coined this uh, term, clash of civilization, in an old article on the, the sources or the roots of um, Arab rage. And it was picked up by um, Samuel Huntington of Harvard. And it's a thoroughly silly and superficial notion. My memoir is the antidote to this framework of looking at Jewish, Muslim, or Israeli-Arab relations, along the lines that Ella has outlined. There was no clash of culture. We were Arab Jews. We were a Jewish family in Baghdad. We spoke Arabic. We spoke Arabic in a um, Baghdadi Jewish dialect. Our culture was Arab culture. Uh, my parents' music was the music we heard. It was uh, Arabic um, music. So, so the real cause of the uprooting of my family and the rest of the Jewish community from Iraq was not cultural, it was political. And more specifically, it was the rise of nationalism in the interwar period. Both Arab nationalism and more especially Jewish nationalism, the rise of Zionism and the establishment of the State of Israel. It was the Zionist movement and the creation of Israel that made coexistence between Jews and Muslims in Iraq impossible. Let me give you one example. 
1948 Arab-Israeli war. The Iraqi army fought in Palestine and then withdrew and never signed an uh, armistice agreement with Israel. So officially, Iraq is still at war with, with Israel. My grandmother, Muzli, had a Muslim friend, Um Ahmad. Um Ahmad's son was a very senior officer in the Iraqi army. And one day, my grandmother went to visit Um Ahmad, and she saw a large group of senior Iraqi officers bent over a map on the table. And I can only guess that it was the map of the UN partition resolution of 1947, which divided mandatory Palestine into two states, one Jewish, one Arab. And they were discussing how to attack this Jewish state when Umm Ahmad elbowed them out of the way and she said, where is this so-called state? Al-Dawla al-Maz'uma, this so-called right. state. And uh, they showed her on the map and she said, aren't you ashamed of yourself? This, you, you call this a state? I alone, I pick it up, this so-called state, I put it in my mouth and I crush it between my teeth. And then years later in Israel, on Independence Day parade, parades, there would be troops marching, artillery, tanks, the Air Force was doing formations in the air, and my grandmother would say in Arabic, where are you, Um Ahmad? Let's see you come and put this so-called state between your teeth and crush it. So my point is that the problem between Muzli and Um Ahmad was not one of language, and it wasn't one of culture. It was a political problem. It was a political issue, the Arab-Israeli conflict. Now, in my book, there are going to be 10 chapters. Well, I, I'll give you a quick uh, breakdown. I was born in Baghdad in 1945. 1950, my family moved to Israel. I went to school in Israel. I was a very poor uh, student at school, so I was about to be thrown out of uh, high school because of my poor marks. So I was sent to a Jewish school in London from 10 to 18. I did A-levels, then I went back and I did national service in the Israeli army, and I came back to this country, and I did history at Cambridge, and then one year MSc in international relations at LSC, and my memoir will go at the very most up to the end of my university education. <coughs> and chapter one is an introduction between Arabs and Israelis. Chapter two is Iraqi roots. It's the story of my father, and the only two points that emerge of my, may be brought interest in that chapter is the nature of Iraqi society at the time. It was very, very corrupt. Iraqi politics were extremely corrupt. My father was a very rich businessman, and he had a, an import business, importing uh, the most uh, modern bathroom sets and tiles from London. And his most eminent client was Faisal I of Iraq. But most of the ministers in many of Nouria Said's minist uh, governments were clients of my father. They would build a house for themselves. They would come to my father and um, 
and buy all the equipment that they needed for their houses. Uh, it would be on credit, on take. They wouldn't pay. My father never chased them up to pay, but they made it up for him with government contracts. So it was corrupt, but it wasn't a vicious society. People did not dis suddenly disappear from the streets as in the days of the Ba'ath regime. The, the other point I would make that emerges from this part of the memoir is the anti-colonial sentiments in Iraqi society that we don't hear so much about, but they are very, very strong and deeply rooted. And the symbol of British imperialism in Iraq was the ambassador, Sir Kinahan Cornwallis. And during the Second World War, Cornwallis imposed rations and complete, contr complete controls on the Iraqi economy in Britain's imperial uh, interest. And my father tried to get a monopoly of galvanized iron, and he was called Malik al-Chinku, the king of the galvanized iron. But Kern Wallis uh, controlled and decided the prices for him, so he didn't make the huge fortune that he expected. So my father really hated Cornwallis, but he couldn't pronounce uh, Kinahan Cornwallis. I can barely do it. So I used to call him Kalb ibn al-Kalb, dog and the son of a dog. And w when he was angry, when my dad was angry with me, he would call me Ya Kalb ibn al-Kalb, or he would call me Ya ibn al-Yamani, a Yemeni is a Yemenite, and I still don't understand why a Yemenite is a term of abuse. Uh, chapter 3 is Saida's story. My mother's actual name was Mas'uda, and Saida for short, but uh, when, she, when we moved to Israel, her name became Aida. So, uh, chapter 3 is very detailed, and it's her story as she told it to me. And m My mother is the ultimate narcissist. She, there's nothing she likes talking, uh, she likes better than talking about herself and about the good old days in Iraq. So I recorded an interview with her and maybe 10 times I sat with her and I've got about 50 pages of notes. And, and I recommend that you do that with your parents as, you know, as a record of their life. And um, one day I said to my mother, okay, I've got enough material about you, but I have very little material about my dad, so today I want to ask you about my dad. And she said, fine. So she answered one question about my dad, and within 30 <laughs> seconds she reverted to numero uno. She went to the Alliance School for Girls in Baghdad that we talked about yesterday, and she learned four languages, and everything was taught through the medium of French, and she's 93 now, she lives in Ramat Gan, she's still going strong, and if, if anyone dares suggest that she might be dementing, she declaims Archimedes' law in French. She, when she was a schoolgirl, she was forced to marry my father, who was a lot older than her, and one thing that comes across in, her, in the chapter on her as well is the colonial factor which was so crucial in shaping the history uh, of Iraq in that period. Her father was the chief interpreter for the British forces in Iraq, and her two brothers became captains in British intelligence. 
They weren't soldiers, they weren't military people, but they wore uniform and they were interpreters because they went to the Alion school for boys. They knew languages, they knew uh, Arabic, of course, and good English, so they were recruited. And Britain divided, uh, uh, resorted in Iraq to the time-hollowed imperial policy of divide and rule. And one aspect of that was to favor the minorities, particularly Jews and Christians who tended to be well-educated and to know languages, and they would get posts in the, um, in the government, in the, in the civil service. And this caused resentment by uh, the Muslims. So the Jews in Iraq were seen as the friends of the hated British, which was one source of hostility towards them. Another source of hostility towards Britain was that under British auspices, after the Balfour Declaration, there was a systematic Zionist takeover of Palestine and that was greatly resented by Iraqis. You, you mentioned the Farhud, the pogrom against the Jews in Baghdad in 1941, and this is a real landmark in the history of the Jews. It is usually taken by Zionist historians as a manifestation of inbuilt pervasive anti-Semitism, but it wasn't. It certainly gave an outlet to anti-Semitic sentiments, but the real reason for the Farhud, uh, the real fault for the Farhud was British. Sir Kinahan Cornwallis, because there was a nationalist revolt of Rashid Ali al-Gailani, he formed a government uh, which has pro-Nazi sympathies, but it was nationalistic, anti-British. They drove out the British. For a month he was in power, in 1941, and then the British sent forces that converged on Baghdad, and Cornwallis told them not to enter the city, to stay outside the city, so that it wouldn't look as if the regent was coming back to Baghdad on British bayonets. It was all to protect Britain's image. But it was during those two days that there was a complete breakdown of law and order. That's when the program took place. So it's not a straightforward manifestation of pervasive anti-Semitism. My mother spent the 40 days, she took refuge, she and her brothers, in the American embassy. Uh, she didn't suffer any great hardship. Ali, uh, Rashid Ali's government was not anti-Semitic, there was no persecution, but during that period they took refuge and my mother had quite a good time. She flirted with a handsome American diplomat and then uh, went back home. But last year she was offered by the government of Israel compensation for the Farhud as a victim of anti-Semitism of the, of the Farhud. And the money came, it's German reparations money for the Holocaust to the Israeli government. And the mindset of the Netanyahu government is that Arab hostility to the Jews is a straightforward extension of Nazi anti-Semitism. And the Farhud was just one manifestation, one episode in this genocidal drive against the Jews. So last year, my mother got 3,000 shekels, roughly 500 pounds, and every year she will get five, another 3,000 shekels.
The Farhud was a watershed in the history of the Jews. The majority of the Jewish community thought it was a one-off, specific circumstances, and that they would be able to resume the happy life that they'd had until then. But the younger people weren't so, pers- so convinced. They thought that this was real, a real break and that there was no future for Jews in Iraq. And young Jews pursued two tendencies. Some became communists, and they wanted a solution not just for Jews, but for all of Iraq, social reform. And the others, other trend was Zionists. They thought that there is no future for Jews in Iraq, only in Palestine and then in Israel. My family were among those who thought um, that the crisis would be overcome and uh, life could go back to normal. My dad, in particular, was an Iraqi. He could only speak Arabic. He couldn't speak any other uh, language. He had no interest in the Zionist movement, uh, and he very, very much wanted to stay in Iraq. My mother always used to tell me about the very good Muslim friends that we had, And one day I asked her, did we have any Zionist friends? And her reply was, no, uh, Zionism is an Ashkenazi thing. <laughs> It's nothing to do with us. This is a, an exact quote. She said, Zionism is an Ashkenazi thing. It's nothing to do with us. And this really illustrates the majority attitude in Iraq towards Zionism. But this was a European phenomenon. It was a European ideology. It was a solution to the predicament of the Jews in Europe. And it wasn't relevant. In 1950, we emigrated to Israel. So why, why did we end up in Israel? And how did we end up in Israel? How? I'll answer first. My mother had a British passport. Her mother had a British passport. So My mother, my grandmother, my two sisters and I left Baghdad on a regular flight to Cyprus and from there by boat to Haifa. But my father didn't want to leave because he had all his wealth and assets and business. He didn't want to leave. And in the end, he was forced to leave illegally across the border into Iran on horseback with the help of the, of the Kurds. And it took him about a year of trials and tribulations until he joined us in Israel and he lost most of his wealth. Now, why did we leave Iraq? The short answer is that in 1950-51, five bombs were planted on Jewish targets in Baghdad. And there were always rumors that Zionist agents were behind the bombing. All my family and relatives were absolutely certain That, that Israel was behind this because the bombs created a panic which led to the great exodus of the Jews from Iraq. There were a hun- roughly 135,000 Jews in Iraq. By the end of 1951, 120,000 ended up in Israel. I was very interested in, in this. I had a sabbatical year in Jerusalem, which I spent in the Israel State Archives. In 1982, I asked the Israeli archivist, the head of the State Archives, I ordered the files on Iraq 1950. 
It was 1982 and they were not released. So I said to him, 30 years have gone by, why don't you release them? And he said, I'll check. And he said, um, because there, is, there are some Mossad documents in these files. So I said, why don't you split the files, take out the Mossad documents and leave the foreign ministry documents? He said, I'll check. And he came back to me and he said, it's not possible. And he said to me, I assure you that there is no evi incriminating evidence about the bombs. <laughs> and I believed him, and I'm a historian, so I couldn't go on, on the basis of rumors. I had needed to have evidence, and it wasn't there. And in 1961, Ben-Gurion had appointed a commission of inquiry uh, to look into this question, and the report said completely cleared Israel of any responsibility of any involvement. So I accepted that and forgot about the rumors until last year when I was staying with my mother and I met a friend of hers called Yaakov Kalkukli, who is 90 years old, and he is a right-wing Iraqi Jew. He supports the Likud and he was in the Zionist underground in Baghdad and he told me the full story and uh, I don't have time to tell you the full story but the gist of it was that there was a group of people who organized the illegal the forging of documents and the organizing of the illegal immigration from of Zionists from Iraq through Iran to Israel and he and his colleagues used to meet in a house of one of them and play cards as the cover for what they were really doing uh, and one of them was a lawyer called Yosef Basri, and he was a bit, his movements were a bit suspicious, but he didn't share his knowledge with them. He's the one who planted four bombs on Jewish targets, but they didn't do any harm and they didn't kill anyone. They were just intended to frighten people to register to leave the country, to go to, to Israel. And the most famous bomb was the, the hand grenade thrown into the Mas'ud Hashem synagogue in which four Jews died. And Kalkukli said to me, this bomb was nothing to do with us. It wasn't Yosef Basri. It was a Muslim who uh, was responsible for that bomb. And Basri was arrested. They found explosives in his car. He was tortured. He tried to commit suicide but failed. And in the end, he confessed that he was responsible for four bombs, but not for the hand grenade in the Saud Shemtov synagogue, so they had to believe him. The next time I went to Israel, I went armed with a tape recorder, and I recorded Kalkukli, and without any prompting, he suddenly said to the tape, the fifth bomb was also the work of the Mossad. So I nearly fell off my chair, and he said... The Mossad uh, bribed the South Baghdad police chief and he gave the hand grenade to this criminal, to, this, to Hussam al-Haidari, who was a Syrian crook. And it was Hussam al-Haidari who lobbed the hand grenade. So the Mossad was responsible for all five bombs. And um, I said to Kalkukli, do you have any evidence for this? Do I, because, you know, I, this is, I only have your word for it. And he said, yes, he has the police report on this whole affair. Um, 
and eventually he managed to locate it for me and, and this is the police report um, naming names uh, so this is the smoking gun and chapter 5 of my memoir would be on the Baghdad bombshell and it'd be the story of how the Mossad instigated the great exodus from Baghdad. Ch chapter 6 will be about Israel, uh, the promised land, for me, age 5 to 15. I don't have time to talk about that, but everything that I'll write in this chapter will fall under the heading of something that Ella has written, and I'll quote from Ella. What was, for persecuted Ashkenazi minorities, a certain solution and a quasi-redemption of culture was, for the Sephardim, a complete annihilation of a cultural heritage, a loss of identity, and a social and, econom and, social and economic degradation. Uh, there's only one other point that I want to make about my time as a boy, schoolboy in Israel, and that is that I found the Zionist project very puzzling, very, very impressive. The dynamic society, the country being built up and uh, industrialized, and I was a bit disorientated because I wasn't part of it. And many years later, when uh, a Hebrew edition appeared of my book, The Iron Wall, Israel and the Arab World, I was interviewed by a journalist from Haaretz, a long interview, and the title of the interview, I like the Hebrew title, it was Yadeinu Mushetet Lemilchama, Our Hand is Stretched Out in War. Uh, and the punchline in the interview was, I said to him, the state of Israel is an Ashkenazi trick, mm -hmm. and I never fully understood it. And today, I'm 72, I still don't fully understand this Ashkenazi trick. So I'm looking to uh, Yaakov Yadgar, the professor of Israel, Israel history, uh, Israel studies, to enlighten me maybe sometime. Well, I, I really ought to conclude. W what I would say now is that the story of my family illustrates the predicament of Arab Jews. Uh, the term Arab Jews, as you have said, is very controversial. Israelis like binary distinctions. If you are a Jew, you can't be uh, an Arab. But I can't think of a better description of my first identity. There is no other description. I was an Arab Jew. We are refugees. This is questionable. We are not refugees in the sense that Palestinians were refugees. We were not mistreated. We were not expelled from Iraq. But at the very least, and in a very real sense, my family and I are victims of the Arab-Israeli conflict. And I'll frame this part of the memoir under the heading of cruel Zionism. Cruel Zionism. I didn't coin the term. Mm -hmm. But there were two aspects of cruel Zionism. One was the ethnic cleansing of Palestine, and the other is the instigation of the exodus, the ejection of the uh, Jews from Muslim uh, countries and catapulting them to uh, the state of Israel. The scale of the tragedy is huge. The Jews that had left in Iraq, had lived in Iraq for two and a half millennia. Uh, 
My father in Israel was silent. He never talked. He was a broken man. But he could have said, he might have said, the Jews have prayed for a state of their own for 2,000 years, but they prayed in vain. Did it have to happen in my lifetime? <laughs> so the dispossession of the Palestinians and the displacement of Iraqi Jews are part of the same pro historical process. And Ella brings these two aspects of the Zionist project together. There is no comparison between the scale of the suffering of Palestinians and the suffering that we endured. And yet, the parallels of the dislocation and trauma of the two communities are quite poignant. And my hope is that my memoir will be, when it's finished, will be a modest contribution to the, to the study of the field that Ella has so brilliantly opened up about the complex relationship between the Zionist movement and its various victims. Thank you. Okay, well, I'll start with the simulation and then say a word about Moroccan Jewry. The Jews in Iraq were assimilated, but I would prefer another word which was integrated. The Jews in Iraq were integrated into Iraqi society at every level, in the government, the civil service, trade and commerce, culture and the arts, makam, music. They were part of Iraqi society. And in, 1920, in the 1920s, that was the golden age of the Iraqi orientation. So the Jews were Iraqis first, and the religion uh, was Jewish. And King Faisal, who tried to create from the various groups in his country one nation, <coughs> embraced the Jews. He used to visit synagogues and used to say, we are all Iraqis first, and then we happen to be um, uh, Christians or Jews. I happen to be a Sunni Muslim, but we are all Iraqis. It's in the 30s that there was the rise of Arab nationalism, the rise of Nazi Germany, and Nazi uh, propaganda began to reverberate in Iraq and accentuate hostility towards the Jews. And then Hajamin al-Husseini, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, when he left Palestine in the late 1930s, ended up in Baghdad, and he was a rabid anti-Semite, and he spread anti-Semitic propaganda in Iraq, and he was involved in the Rashid Ali al-Gailani chapter. So life, be so strains began to appear, but it's not because of anti-Semitism in Iraq. Anti-Semitism is a European phenomenon. It was not the product of local uh, Muslims, but it was imported into Iraq. So, so the Jews wanted to integrate, they were integrated, and then historical forces conspired against them and isolated them and eventually drove them out of the country. Was Iraq a unique example? N no. There is a story of the Jews of Yemen. I don't know it well, uh, but that was orchestrated by Israel. Operation Mavadak Samin. 
uh, Operation Magic Carpet to bring Yemeni Jews to Israel. But Morocco is more interesting because Moroccan Jews were completely integrated into Moroccan society. In Morocco, there's never been discrimination against the Jews, and there was never any hostility towards the Jews. There was real harmony, and Moroccan Jews were part of Moroccan society um, until the birth of Israel. And then there was a Mossad office, a Mossad station in Rabat, uh, and the king was Hassan II, and Hassan II was persuaded to allow the Mossad to export or to move Moroccan Jews from Morocco to Israel against their will. And he was paid $2,000 per head by the Mossad, and the, the Mossad organized it and some of the Moroccan Jews came from villages, they remote villages. They were quite not particularly well educated. They knew nothing about Zionism. They didn't want to go, but they were um, herded by the Mossad onto boats, and one boat actually sank on the way to Israel. So this is a general phenomenon. And this is how the Mossad operated behind the scenes in Arab countries. And I just recalled one detail about uh, the Iraqi case. Yaakov Kalkukli told me that the op Mossad operator of Yosef Basri was called Max Bennett. And he was based in Iran, which was very friendly to Israel. And Yosef Basri crossed the border met with Max Bennett, who gave him the instructions and gave him the TNT and told him how to use it. And then in 1954, there was the mishap or the Lavon affair. Does anyone, has anyone heard of it? So a Jewish ring, by an espionage ring, organized by the Israeli military, was activated to plant bombs in order to create bad blood between the Nasser regime and, and the West. And one of these hapless Jews was caught. The, the bomb uh, went off prematurely in a cinema, and there was a lot of smoke. He was arrested, and they rounded up the whole cell, including the Mossad officer who, who was their controller, and his name was Max Bennett. So he was doing the same thing that he had done in Iraq. Now, Moshe Charette was prime minister in 1954. In his diary, he wrote that you know, our military people were responsible for this terrible thing. And maybe back in 1950-51, it was our people who planted the bombs in Baghdad. He didn't know. He was the foreign minister, but he was kept in the dark. And it was, it was the same Mossad officer who was doing these things behind the scenes. There is also the issue of multiple identities, of sustaining multiple identities. And here the expert is Yuval Ivry, who gave a most interesting talk to the seminar in Israel studies. And what I remember, Yuval, and I'll give you a chance to comment from your talk, is that the logic of the Ottoman Empire was pluralism,
and it was easy to, ma to maintain, to sustain multiple uh, loyalties, uh, loyalty to the uh, Ottoman Empire as well as to your own community because the Ottoman Empire for all its shortcomings uh, gave civil and religious autonomy to all the communities, Armenians, Greek Orthodox, Jews and what have you. Whereas the, the logic of the British Empire, some bipolar uh, division, divisive, so you can only buy, be one thing or the other. You could only be in Palestine a Jew or an Arab. Israel was a country that was built to absorb European Jews and uh, the Holocaust wiped out the largest reservoir of Jews for Israel and that left a large reservoir of Jews in the Arab lands, so they had to be brought to Israel. And the Zionist narrative says that it was altruism, it was a humanitarian concern for the safety of the Jews of the Arab lands that prompted Israel to bring them, because they were in danger of being engulfed by another holocaust. And Israel was a haven. It was set up as a haven for Jews. That's why they brought them there. But I, I've read a lot of uh, Zionist literature and five volumes of Ben-Gurion speeches. They are the most boring uh, five volumes that I've ever read in my entire career. And I didn't detect any genuine concern for the Jews of Morocco or the Jews of Iraq, or the Jews of um, Yemen. It was all state interest. Everything was subordinated to the interest of the Israeli state. And Ben-Gurion, like the rest of the um, Ashkenazi establishment, was contemptuous of Jews. And um, like Golda Meir, who once said, um, I don't understand how uh, someone who doesn't speak Yiddish can be a Jew. And the Black Panthers had posted which said, Golda, teach us Yiddish. <laughs> <laughs> and Ben-Gurion uh, made many statements, racist statements about um, Oriental Jews, uh, but he was careful. My mother had a friend who had worked as a chambermaid in the King David Hotel in Jerusalem in the 50s when Ben-Gurion and his wife, mad wife Paula were staying and this friend cleaned their room and Paula said to the woman, uh, where are you from? And uh, the woman said, I'm from Iraq. And Paula spat in, spat in her face. And Ben-Gurion was very apologetic. He apologized to her. He hushed it up. But this is an extreme example of uh, Ashkenazi attitude towards uh, the Mizrahim, and the most famous aspect of this attitude towards them is that when they arrived at the airports in Israel, they were sprayed with DDT as if they were animals. Can't imagine anything more humiliating when you arrive in the Holy Land and you are treated like um, an animal. So that's the paradox of needing the manpower and the uh, cannon fodder but at the same time uh, uh, discriminating against the Orientals and looking down on them. 
Um, and this is really where Ella's work is so important in establishing the issue of the Mizrahim as a central issue in Israeli society, Israeli politics, and Israeli-Arab relations. And both Yaakov said that in his introduction yesterday, and Moshe Behar made the same point about the importance of the Mizrahim in this whole literature. So I end up with a tribute to you, Ella. Thank you.